Thank you for having me and uh, uh, thank you for coming. Um, I think I'm going to focus, um, uh, Steve laid out a lot of issues around uh, drug abuse and misuse of the elderly, and I think I'm going to hone in a little bit on what I think is just a really good example of the conundrum that we're in as, as clinicians, which is around opiates. Um, opiates are a good example of the problems with drug abuse and misuse in, in the elderly because uh, they work for what they're prescribed for. They're really good pain medications, and a lot of older people have pain. Um, but as we all know, they also have a lot of risks, and they also have a lot of street value. Um, here in New Hampshire, I think we're very aware of the growing epidemic of uh, prescription drug abuse. Um, and so and the elderly, um, uh, having them in their homes are kind of right in the middle of it. So th this will be a good example of kind of how some of these things play out in a clinical setting. But before I do that, I want to kind of know who all of you are. So we're going to go through this little list and uh, uh, see who's here, first of all. So uh, nurses, can we see? Oh my gosh, a lot of nurses, great. And providers, a few providers, OK. Uh, social work, all right. And I didn't want to put others, so I put better. Anybody better than all of those others? Oh, good. <laughs> you win. Um, okay, now let's see where we're all from. So do you work in a clinic setting? Nice. How about home health or hospice? Oh, good. Perfect. How about a facility setting? I do that too. Awesome. How about an agency? I'm thinking APS. Yeah? Yeah. Good. <laughs> An inpatient? Oh, okay. Okay, so we've got a real, um, you know, diverse group, and we're covering the spectrum of where older people sort of show up with these issues. So this will be good. And I'm going to do um, a little bit of uh, some more background stuff about opiates, um, but then I'll go into some cases. But please interrupt, raise your hands, and we'll try to talk about these cases together. Because um, these really are brainstorming issues. So, you know, why are we here? So to go back again, we're talking about drug abuse and misuse. And if, not just in the elderly, but if you just go to the CDC website and you start looking at, um, you know, what are we talking about with abuse? The, the main drugs sort of in our community that are abused are essentially the benzodiazepines, uh, methylphenidate or Ritalin, and then opiates. And so for older people, we're really gonna be talking, for a lot of them, with prescription drugs about, about opiates. And, um, Steve kindly nicely went through these definitions, but just thinking about what is misuse, what is abuse, um, and like a lot of definitions, when you, when you apply them to older people, they sort of start to fall apart. Um, they look a little differently. Um, but one, you know, the things we're gonna be talking about is taking someone else's prescriptions to self-medicate. Um, we need to talk about that in older people who are often vulnerable, often have a lot of people coming in and out of their homes, that's gonna come up taking a prescription medication in a way other than it is being prescribed. Another common problem in older people for all sorts of reasons, um, everything from uh, just not understanding their medication to actually uh, abusing it on purpose, um, to uh, actually having uncontrolled pain and just using it differently than they were advised to. And then the last is taking a medication to get high. This is gonna be less common in older people, um, but we'll just br we'll bring that up as well. So I will, So again, Steve nicely laid out some of the statistics, but it's always just good to remind ourselves about what is really the risk of these medications. So just again, just looking at basic CDC data, this is kind of 
kind of interesting to look at. So um, the graph shows uh, the deaths uh, per 100,000 population and then breaks it down by age group. And do I actually have a pointer too? Oh, I do. Um, so of course, here's who I work with. So I work with people over the age of 65 and actually most of my patients are over the age of 80. So um, you, know, the, you don't see that much uh, 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 deaths related to opiates. And again, so the comparison here, the gold is the opiate pain medications, and then the rest of it is illegal drugs. So the first thing to notice is across the whole population, we're seeing a lot more with prescription drugs and, of course, with illegal drugs. So that's to note to begin with. So here's our group of over 65, but Steve alluded to this as well, which I think is sort of scary, is, is these are who's coming. Um, this is a different generation um, who's, a, who's going to hit our older age group, and this is, this is the largest group overall, is 45 to 64. It's not necessarily young people. Um, so right now, the group that we're mostly working with is relatively low risk compared to everybody else. It isn't zero, um, but there is a big group of people coming who are a little more accustomed to these medications and are at um, pretty high risk um, for uh, a bad outcome from these drugs. Um, and it is, again, higher than just in, than illegal drugs, street drugs. So we have a lot of responsibility here. Um, but if you look at um, older people taking these medications now, about 20% of people over the age of 65 take some kind of pain medication several times a week. And that tells me a couple of things. One is something that I already knew, which is that a lot of older people are in pain. And I would say probably chronic pain, chronic arthritis pain, is the most common thing I see in my office. And I see a lot of people nodding. I think it's the most common thing we all deal with. Um, it doesn't have a cure, so we don't fix it. Um, we end up having to manage it, and it's the kind of thing that just um, will come will come back to. Uh, but uh, this is a large number of people taking analgesic several times a week. The rate of abuse in that group could be as high as 20 percent. It's actually very hard to get statistics of people um, abusing the, uh, 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 these medications when you look at all analgesics. Um, oops, pushing the wrong button. If you look at oxycodone, hydrocodone, and methadone, and these are probably three of the most commonly prescribed opiates for the elderly, these three alone are responsible for 40% of those opiate-related deaths, though again, that was a pretty small group as we looked at before, so you're not talking about a large number of people. But this pres these prescription rates are increasing in older patient groups faster than they are increasing in younger patient groups. There are more and more opiate prescriptions being written in older patient groups than they are for younger patients, which I think is a little bit different than what the general sense is. This is a, this is a, a rapidly growing group of people taking these medications. Okay, so now we'll get to the meat. So this, for me, sort of lays out, I'm sorry, actually, the pink doesn't show up as well. And the question says, what is at stake? And I think that this kind of lays it out in many ways for me. One of the things I, I really like about practicing geriatrics is you really get to think about people um, on a trajectory. They're on a path, right? When you hit 65, you're on a path. It's not just sort of, you know, the what, you know, 44 and you sprain your ankle and, and this is what's happening right now and who knows what the future holds. At 65, you really start to see what, what is the next 25, 30 years going to look like? You know, what, what are the conditions people are going to be dealing with? Are, is it memory problems? Is it arthritis problems? What kind of financial issues are going to be there? What kind of social support issues are going to be there? A lot of that stuff is already there and we're kind of looking ahead to where is this all going? 
And this is a very, very common um, trajectory. So people start with advancing age, and we know that you know, obviously with advancing age, people accumulate more chronic diseases. And this is everything from heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, to sort of what we think of as typical chronic diseases to again, what I think is the most chronic common disease in my office, which is arthritis. Um, and they accumulate. They don't, they get managed. Most of them don't get fixed. You know, these are curable things. And they accumulate. And what they end up with is the three things that we see coming as people get older. Um, one is disability. So by disability, obviously we mean, you know, people having more difficulty taking care of themselves. Uh, mobility is a big one when you talk about arthritis, walking with a cane, walking with a walker, not being able to drive because of lower extremity issues, not being able to carry groceries. So that level of disability, this is what we start anticipating. You know, if you have bad knees, where is this headed? Um, and then with disability comes dependency, which means now you need more help. I need help doing this. I need to be in, a, in an assisted setting. I need my daughter to get groceries for me. People start to lose their independence. And right in the center of it all is, of course, pain. Um, pain in older people. Um, pain uh, from the disability, pain leading to the disability, and the same thing with dependency. And so right into the middle of this really complicated um, combination, we're going to throw in some opiates and just make it really complicated, right? Right into the middle of all of this, we now have to throw in some pain medication. So let's think about that. And then I'm not going to make it harder because with the opiates, as people become more, have more disability, more chronic diseases, now they tend to have more and more people helping to take care of them. And I don't just mean caregivers, I mean you know, specialists, everything from the orthopedist to the cardiologist to uh, the rehab team. And the reason this becomes important is um, uh, the more people involved, uh, the more prescribers, I should say, in an older person's life, the more high risk they are for getting a lot of extra medication. Right? Everyone tries to solve the problem in their own way. So this is where we accumulate a lot of medication. So uh, um, I'm calling it team-based to make it positive, but there are ways that you can think of that as a bad thing also. Um, and then dependency leads to vulnerability, and we know that too. Um, we know that, the, again, the more, the more help you need, the more people outside of your circle that you need, and even your circle itself, it, places, it makes you vulnerable. So now we have this whole mess, and opiates are right in the middle of it. So for me, it isn't even just a question of what are the opiates doing to the person. It's sort of how are they mixed in. And you could probably replace this, Steve, I would think, with alcohol. You could put any substance in there that you want. And it's in this whole big picture. And so this is our, this is our battle. But I'm going to just focus on the, the opiates for a minute. So let's, so then an easy solution to this would be to say, well, we just shouldn't prescribe any of this stuff. That would make it a lot easier and focus on those other things, which we do. But we need to really take seriously pain in the elderly, okay? We have to kind of think about that just by itself. Um, so pain in the elderly, this is a very hard thing to measure, as we all know, working with older people for a lot of different reasons. Um, one issue is that the elderly, even though I showed that the prescription rates are going up, that this big crowd of older people are coming who take these medications, they have the lowest rates of reported pain. And there's always been a, an assumption that there's general underreporting in this group. 
And I think there are two reasons for that. And Steve um, uh, uh, alluded to one of them, which is the stoicism. There's a real generational difference to the people who are right now kind of in their 70s and 80s, which is there is a sense of, I can, I can manage this myself. I don't need any medication. I don't want to take pills for pain. There's just a real stoicism in, that, in this generation. Um, and there's a lot of thought that there's, there's pain that people underreport. There's also a sense that pain is part of normal aging. You know, the kind of what do you expect? Of course you're not gonna be able to walk on your hip or of course your back is gonna hurt. You know, this is, you know, you've had surgery. What, what do you expect to happen? And these two things together, I think, lead to uh, some of this underreporting of pain um, in the elderly. Um, However, when people look at specific populations, um, they, you know, the, the, the data is that about 80% of cancer patients will experience pain at some point during the course of their illness, and they don't even have to be terminally ill. Um, this, is a, this is an uncomfortable condition, and the treatments are uncomfortable, and people have pain. And, and uh, the fear of pain contributes to a big part of the quality of life issues in cancer patients. A lot of people are nodding their heads. I think we know this. People are very afraid, especially <coughs> with this diagnosis, I'm going to be in pain. Um, and that contributes to anxiety and functional limitations. People start to cut back their activities just out of fear that they're going to be uncomfortable. We also know that in, in uh, nursing settings, in, de in dependent settings, nursing homes, assisted living, especially with patients with memory issues, communication issues, persistent pain is very common. Um, some of it has to do with develop difficult, it's difficult to assess people for pain in those settings, and I don't have a lot of examples of that, but we could talk about that. And there's obviously all the regulatory obstacles. I think we fax back and forth to the nursing home endlessly all these pieces of paper to get people their regular uh, medications. It's, um, there's a lot of obstacles to keeping people on pain medication in, um, uh, in a supported setting. So this is sort of laying the land here. And what happens if we don't treat pain? There's a lot of data on this. So we know that if we don't treat pain uh, adequately, I always tell my patients that pain is exhausting, it's depressing, and it's distracting. And those things lead to all of this stuff. So the, the two big ones at the beginning are functional impairment and falls. So when people are in pain, um, you know, and you could just take your basic knee pain, hip pain, and think about getting on and off the toilet. I mean, it's hard. And it's hard work. Um, it slows people down. They're more likely to be incontinent because they can't get there in time. They have a harder time kind of managing their own hygiene. And it leads to falls. It leads to falls because people can't bear weight evenly. They're afraid to put weight on one leg so they can't catch themselves. Um, and so we know that, that not treating pain leads to these two things. Uh, it slows rehab potential. So, you know, one of the modalities we often have for back pain is let's do therapy. Well, the therapist comes and there's only so much they could do because the patient's in pain. You're in that cycle, right, that you have to get yourself out of. How can I do rehab if it hurts? So then how can I get stronger? It leads to depression and anxiety, just like I just said. So, I, you know, pain is depressing and it's exhausting. And people say, I can't think straight when I'm in pain. Uh, it contributes to memory issues because um, it gets in your way. It's the first thing you feel, it's the first thing you see, and a lot of older people, um, it's depressing. I'm gonna have to, that, that phrase people say, I'm gonna have to live with this for the rest of my life. Um, that's a really hard thing to get your head around, you know, when you're, when you're in your 70s and 80s. 
and maybe you don't have any other medical problems besides arthritis, and yes, indeed, that could go on for a long time. Uh, reduce social interaction. So here's where people isolate themselves. I don't go to church anymore because it hurts to go in and out, you know, it hurts to get in and out of the car. Or even in an assisted living setting, I don't go down to the dining room, you know, for all the meals, I just go for one because it hurts to get down there, it hurts to get in and out of the chair. So they start to isolate themselves, uh, for either because of pain or fear of pain. It affects sleep, it affects appetite, um, there are increased healthcare costs, obviously, associated with all of this stuff, because um, um, you know a lot of patients I have who are in chronic pain, I need to see more often, even if all we're doing is sort of fussing over their pain regimens. Um, and the last one is sort of an interesting one, which is caregiver distress. Just like I said, probably the most common uh, problem I deal with in my office is pain and arthritis pain. Probably the most common email I get from family members is my mother is in pain or she's not taking her Tylenol, or something around pain medicine, pain regimens. You know, just this morning, a note from someone who's in a nursing home. I don't think she's getting the scheduled pain meds. You know, this is a very, you know, no one likes to see their loved one um, uncomfortable. No one likes to call someone on the phone, and the first thing they start talking about is the pain. My back pain, my knee pain, my hip pain. There's a lot of caregiver distress around having a loved one who's uncomfortable. So this is a kind of a depressing list, right? This is a sobering list for our older, our older folks. So how, do we, how are we supposed to manage this? Um, so, you know, we have our WHO pain ladder. This is sort of this, you know, this is kind of the classic. I was taught this when I was a geriatrics fellow. It still gets pulled out. It's in all the geriatric textbooks. Um, so the WHO came up with a pain ladder to sort of put the medications into kind of three steps. Um, and you know, so the first step deals with kind of mostly NSAIDs and Tylenol. Um, these adjuvants they list at the bottom. This is going to be um, heat, massage, therapy. You know, non-pharmacologic stuff, which doesn't mean that it isn't important, but it's just so you know what those are. And they're in all three groups. The middle group are these combined medications. So obviously, APAP is again Tylenol. So this top one is Tylenol codeine. This is Vicodin, there's Percocet, so that's what's here, these co combination medications. Tramadol is on there. And of course, they save the opiates for severe pain. Right? They save that for the very last step on their step ladder. And there's a lot of complaints about this ladder, and probably you know, everyone here could think about what they already are. The first is the idea that there's a step, right? that you have to go from one to the other in order to go up the ladder. And a lot of people don't do it that way. There's also they don't make a distinction between chronic and acute pain. You might manage acute pain differently than chronic pain. And I'm mostly talking about chronic pain. And there are a lot of drugs on here that we just don't use in older people. And a bunch of them are in the mild group, right? So we don't use aspirin for pain in older people. And we try to avoid anti-inflammatories. Um, and I'll talk about that in 10 seconds. But, um, you know, so in the first group we have acetaminophen. And as people probably know, from the you know, uh, more recent guidelines and in the press, you know, we are starting to watch the dosing even of acetaminophen very, very carefully in terms of long-term toxicity, people taking way more than we know. Um, a lot of people feel that's really safe because it's over the counter, um, so they're taking a lot more of it than um, is recommended. Um, so the, the things to think about with the, the other like little gripe I have about the pain ladder is that I know I don't like these combination medications. And I won't spend a lot of time on that right now, but we, we could talk about these.
but I don't like I don't like mixing together Tylenol, um, acetaminophen, and opiates. I feel like they're two separate drugs. They should be they should be given separately and they should be dosed separately. Um, it's the only way to monitor the actual doses that people are getting. But that's just sort of my little pet peeve. Um, so this step ladder is what they put out for us, but it really in many ways doesn't fit a lot of our patients, um, and it doesn't uh, again fit a lot of chronic pain patients. So, um, and I just decided to shove this in here. So uh, the NSAIDs are an interesting thing to think about um, just because they're what a lot of other people think, couldn't I take ibuprofen instead of taking an opiate? And anti-inflammatories in the elderly are probably far more dangerous than uh, most opiates. They have a very high risk of adverse drug reactions. Um, the big one, of course, is GI bleeding. I've sent way more people to the hospital with GI bleeding um, from ibuprofen than I have with any kind of opiate-related condition, and the renal toxicity is there also. Um, so I'm, I'm way more cautious about these agents than I am about, about opiates. Um, and, and if people have questions about that, we could talk about that more at the end. Um, but I throw this up here because this is something you hear about a lot. Okay, so the American Geriatric Society has nicely kind of come up with guidelines for pain medication. And they are actually the ones who wrote this, this statement about the anti-inflammatories. Um, and they've given us uh, basically this kind of little summary about opiates. So they're efficacious, they work. They work for musculoskeletal pain, they work for neuropathic pain. I didn't even talk about neuropathy as another really common reason my patients are in pain. Um, the risks, you know, they tend to minimize them. They have, most of the adverse issues decrease with time, so most people get used to these drugs in terms of uh, fogginess, confusion, and we could talk about even how to minimize that. And other than constipation, which has to be managed forever uh, with these drugs, uh, the, the adverse events decrease with time. They did acknowledge that there are some controversies about these drugs, of course, um, and that not everyone would agree with these guidelines. I loved this term, which I had never seen before, which is opiophobia, um, which is, I think, this sense that all of these drugs are bad, um, with just a real fear of introducing these drugs into um, an older person's regimen. And then, of course, there's the stigma. And I, I, these are real, so I don't want to say, oh, they're just stigma, addiction and tolerance, um, but we'll talk about this. But I think this, especially in older people who've never been on these drugs before, who do not have a history of substance abuse, who are not abusing alcohol, these terms are thrown around probably a little too much. Those, these patients are very low risk, especially for something that we would call addiction. Um, and these concerns tend to come more from family than anything else. And so, but they're good to know about because you, I often just deal with it up front. Um, so here, so the stage is set now. We are ready to use opiates for pain in the elderly. I think we're sort of talking about it. So the way AGS says to do this, um, these are their guidelines, but I'm gonna add this up at the top. So when I was a geriatrics fellow, oh. Could you move closer to the point? I can. You Have I been slowly drifting that way? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see my own slides. Yeah. Um, so when I was a geriatrics fellow, I had a, a wonderful palliative care attending. And um, he was actually my attending not just for uh, our inpatient hospice service, but for the nursing home in general. And he, he did a wonderful thing, which was every time we went in to talk to somebody, whether it was in the clinic, in the hospital, in the nursing home, the first thing he always says, said was, are you comfortable? 
Do you think, you, can you sit like that for an extended period of time to have a conversation? And I would say almost always the answer was no, I'm not, like I'm not really sitting up in the bed and I'm not really that comfortable. And, he, and for him, he said, that's an emergency. And he's pushing the button you know, to have the nurse come and when was the last time they had their Tylenol? When was the last time, how can we reposition you? And he said, you know, it's as if you were walking in the room and the patient had a fever. You wouldn't just start talking, or they were short of breath, or they were tachycardic. You wouldn't just start talking and ignore it. You would call the nurse. And so it was, you know, this is the fifth vital sign, as all the, you know, everyone in nursing knows. And I think we have to take that seriously. And so I'm, I always keep that very much in my mind. If this is a patient who I know has pain, is to say, are we comfortable and we ready to talk? Because we're going to sit for a while. And you can't, again, pain is exhausting, depressing, and distracting. And you're not with me if you're not comfortable. It also tells me, do we actually have a plan for when you're not comfortable? Because if, you know, if we're not giving you things, then, then I know that's one of the first things we have to work on. So I just put that in there because um, uh, th this is one of the, the, uh, the, the big things I took away from my, fel from my fellowship and a really wonderful attending. But so the AGS guidelines start with these, sort of thinking about these medications. And the reason I put this up here, knowing that most of, most of you in the room are not prescribers, is to say that if you're really careful and you follow the guidelines, you can use these drugs safely. And so I just want to talk through these, because again, I want to avoid the idea that the only answer to the abuse and misuse potential is that we just don't use them. So start low and go slow. Right, that's just a principle, another really good principle for all geriatric prescribing. I mean, and that goes for all the sedatives, sleeping pills, antipsychotics, antidepressants. I take the smallest pill that, there, that you can prescribe and we cut it in half. So when I talk about low doses, I'm talking about half of the smallest pill of oxycodone. It's like two and a half milligrams of oxycodone. It's tiny, it's teeny tiny. It's a tiny pill, it's a tiny dose. We start really, really low, we go very, very slowly. That you are much more likely to avoid um, adverse events, um, to see if the patient's gonna tolerate it, to get ahead of the bowels, which is usually one of the biggest issues. Because um, I think that one of the big mistakes I see is people saying, well, I'm gonna slap on the lowest dose fentanyl patch. Right, we see that happen. Um, which is a very high dose of opiates. It's the equivalent of probably six Percocet a day. And if they've never seen it before, they're, they're the ones who end up in the emergency room. So very, very low and go slowly. Um, so again, the smallest dose pills and you cut them in half using the least invasive routes of administration. So oral, so we're not starting with sub-Q, we're not starting with patches, we're doing just teeny tiny doses of oral medicine. Really thinking about timing, I think there's a real difference between doing really understanding what is the patient's pain, when do they have it, and when do they actually need the medicine. So again, it's easy to give, you know, Percocet one every four hours as needed for pain. That's a terrible prescription because what is as needed? What is every four hours? That's six of them a day. Is that what you want them to do the first day? So I'm really picky about, you know, for a lot of people with arthritis pain, maybe they can take Tylenol all day and just that half a dose of oxycodone at bedtime, you know, just to get the pain under control so they can get to sleep. Or if, if the pain is the thing that keeps them from going to church, is that a half a pill we can take on the way to church? Or when your daughter comes to pick you up? You know, can you make it episodic so that the total dose you end up taking is very low? If they have around the clock pain, then figure out what the schedule should be and give it timing. So the kind of as needed open-ended 
prescriptions, those also get people into trouble. And I think Steve had mentioned this idea of follow-up, really close follow-up. So we made this plan, let's talk in two weeks and see if it's working, you know, and then move the dosing around. Um, so I think that's a real, these, this is a really critical part of being safe, um, is the timing and not leaving it open-ended. Short versus long acting. Again, always starting short, and very few people will really need to be switched over to long acting, and they need to be used to the equivalent dose first before they go over, because the long acting ones have a lot more, more problems than the short acting. I like this term here, which again, another fun term I learned, which is rational polypharmacy. I never really think of polypharmacy as something that is rational. But this is the idea that instead of having one pain medicine and they just keep taking more and more of it, how about a few different things, right? So you have, you have your acetaminophen, maybe you do have one ibuprofen for a specific time of day. Maybe you then have a half an oxycodone at bedtime or a gabapentin for the neuropathy in the middle of the night. And you use very low doses of several medications to target very different, different times of day, different symptoms and then you don't have high doses of any one medication. So that's the idea behind rational polypharmacy. But again, this requires to be really, really picky about what you're supposed to take when, um, the scheduling of it, that sort of thing. The other thing that uh, uh, I was think I, I always, I, I, ugh, I added to this is to set comfort goals. So when, when Steve was talking, I keep bringing you up. <laughs> when Steve was talking about his friend with the cocktail who was saying they were doctor shopping, it's like, what are they looking for? They want to be fixed. It's very clear to be specific upfront. What is the goal of this medication? It's to take your pain from an eight to a five, or it's to make it so you can get to church. I am not going to fix it. It's not going to be perfect. Or another thing I always tell people, there's a price to be, to be, to be paid for perfection. If I make your pain go away, you're not going to be happy. Because when it's gone, you're going to be sick because that's, the kind of, that's how much medicine it's gonna take. So being really clear, we're trying to keep you functional, independent, but this is not a cure for the neuropathy, the spinal stenosis, whatever you're treating, and setting comfort goals. And people who don't agree with that, that should be an early red flag that you may head down the wrong road with this person, that you don't have the right goals. The person who nods, yeah, oh yeah, if we could just take the edge off, I'd be great, you're, you're, you're gonna be fine with these drugs. If you see here something else, then you need to worry. Like maybe we're not on the same page. Okay. So we're going to move along. So the risks of addiction and abuse in older people. So Steve already laid out a lot of the stuff, but I'll just add a couple of things. You know, just the risk again in older people is very low if they don't have a history of substance abuse. Um, and these are new medications for them. So, you know, you're talking about someone who's, who's not been on and off of opiates their whole life, but suddenly has a bad hip, they're not gonna have surgery, and you wanna give them a little something so they can be more mobile, the risk is very low of addiction or abuse in those people. Obviously, you need to know that history to assess that risk, so I think all those screening tools are really important. You need to have screen for alcohol use, screen for other drugs, um, mental health, health issues, because those need to, to come into play. Obviously, someone who's looking for you know, something more than what you can achieve, maybe has more depressive issues, things like that. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about high-risk patients and doing contracts and drug screens because I think Margot may talk about some of that stuff, so I'm going to skip that, though that's an important next step. I'm just really talking about more of your average person in your office. And again, the elderly are particularly at risk when there's more than one prescribing provider. 
And there's two reasons for that. I mean, one is that's just fragmented care. So if they're going to the emergency room and getting pills, then they're going to the spine clinic and getting pills, and then they're coming to you for pills, they're just really high risk. It's too complicated, and it's not meeting the principles we laid out from the geriatric society. It could be a sign of doctor shopping, and it's good to it's good to fish for that a little bit. But for a lot of older people, it's just plain old fragmented care. And I will say that in addition to my favorite to to uh, one of my favorite things about being a geriatrician, which is weaning people off of medications, my other favorite thing is to wean them off of specialists. I go down the list, and do you really need this one? And do you really need this one? Because the fewer people that are in the kitchen, the more co the less complicated it is. I love weaning people off of their specialists. <laughs> so I'm gonna throw into the mix just a little bit of different data before we then hit our cases so that we have the whole lay of the land. And now let's just talk about dependent adults and caregivers um, because these guys are in there too. So, I, and I always think these statistics are very sobering. You're not dealing with the patient by themselves. So right now in the United States, there are 66 million caregivers. About a third of the US population is taking care of somebody in some way who's ill, disabled, or aged. Of that group, 52 million are really dealing with adults. Okay, so it's the majority of them are taking care of adults, not children or somebody else, they're taking care of adults. And of those, uh, 44 million are taking care of somebody of advanced age, so over the age of 50, and there's a very large group that take care of people with dementia. And we have to figure out how we manage pain, pain medications, controlled substances, drugs with street value when this many people are also in the mix. And that isn't to say that, that um, you know, these people are dangerous, but there's a lot of issues about prescribing and who's in charge of the meds and giving the meds on time. This, is, this, is, um, this just is part of the reality of taking care of older people. And we know that these are stressful jobs, just to add to this. So especially if you're dealing with family, these are people who are losing work hours, losing wages by taking care of older people. There's a significant amount of emotional stress, but we also know um, increasingly about the physical stress. I have a lot of injured caregivers, people with back pain, shoulder pain, lifting, um, all kinds of their own um, health issues, and there's a very high level of musculoskeletal strain, people with their own pain related to taking care of somebody else. So there's a very complicated um, uh, mix of factors. Okay, so now we're gonna, so I wish I knew how to do this and could make that thing go up and back and forth. So it looks like it's only tipped towards benefits, but I kind of wanted it to do that. So just imagine that it's going back and forth. So if you look at opiates, I mean, obviously we talked about the benefits. We know these drugs work. Morphine has been around for, you know, centuries. So obviously th these things work for pain. I've tried to argue that if you do it right, they're relatively low risk and they're low cost. A lot of these medications are pretty inexpensive compared to the latest and greatest that come out you know, on the market. The risks, of course, are that they have street value. I mean, and we have to take that very seriously. I mean, and I know I do as a provider because diversion is a big issue. Um, and every year, I probably have two or three cases that have to go through the police department for diversion. This is not the patient's problem, but it's part of the reality of having these drugs out there and the potential for abuse, which Steve nicely laid out, and I think we all know is very real. And again, we gotta weigh this out. This is a real conundrum, how to deal with these issues. Okay, so let's look at two, two examples of how this kind of plays out. And I'll use your help here, because there's a lot of um, people from different settings about ideas for, for how, to, how to deal with these situations. Now I feel like I'm standing in front of you guys. Okay, so for the first case, 
I think, so we have an elderly woman who lives alone in senior housing. So this is not an, oh, please. I'm sorry, just a microphone feature. Oh, thank you. Okay, can you hear me? Is that, is that gonna work? Okay. So we have an elderly woman who lives alone in senior housing. She doesn't have any assistance or um, it's not assisted living or anything like that. She has mild memory loss and has stopped driving. She felt uncomfortable driving. Her family took her car away. So we already know she's in a good setting for this. There's other older people around, um, but she's a little bit isolated. She has local family and they hired an aide to come uh, once a week to run errands for her organize her medications in a pill box, and uh, to help her kind of organize her meals for the week. So she's pretty well set up um, in, in, her, in her home setting. Um, but she has severe spinal stenosis, um, very severe spinal stenosis. And she has tried everything. So she has tried the spinal injections, she's tried scheduled Tylenol, um, she's tried the pain patches, lidoderm patches, um, muscle rubs, physical therapy, and everything helps a little bit, but it's severe. And over time, it is getting worse. And there has been the sense that this is um, impacting her memory as well, that her family notes that when they call her, she's in pain, and when she says she's in pain, she just gets really rattled. Again, we go back to my pain is exhausting, depressing, and distracting, right? So and she's in there. She's, she's tired, she's, she feels like her life doesn't have a lot of quality to it because she's in so much pain, and she's just really rattled by the pain. So she takes oxycodone four times a day for pain. I think it's like five milligrams. So she's got the whole pill, and it's just four times a day, and it's, all, it's nicely spread out. And that sort of worked for her. Okay, so then she gets into trouble. So she runs out of her medication early one month, Right, so she has this four times a day, and we have her on one of these schedules, and um, Margo may talk about this, but I could as well, kind of how we do this. It's probably the same as everybody else. We do these one-month prescriptions, and it gets mailed to the pharmacy, and it's on a schedule, but if somebody runs out early, well, she ran out early, and she doesn't remember why. She's like, I don't know. I don't know where they are, but it's a week early, and the pharmacy's saying I can't fill it, and now I don't know what to do because I, I don't have any my, my pain medication. People are nodding. This happens all the time, right? We're just like, where is it? So, so what are some possibilities for where her pain medication is? Do people want to throw it out there? What, what have you seen happen? Her aid. Her aid. So, so somebody took it, right? We always, you know, got to worry about that. What else could have happened? She lost it. She lost it. She has memory problems. Who knows where she put it? She took extra doses. She took extra, yeah. She dropped it on the floor. Yeah. She dropped it, you'll find them on the carpet, under the drawer. Pharmacy filled too few pills. Right, so then you have to worry, did they actually give her enough? They don't stock a lot at the pharmacies. Everybody knows this. They don't like to keep large amounts in there. If they run out, they owe the patient some. She may not understand that. Other thoughts that you've seen? Yes, I mean, we've got a lot of suspicions, right? You know, we don't think she's doctor shopping. We don't think she's selling them herself. That just doesn't sound like who she is. Um, even if she's taking extra, it could even be because she forgot. You know, four times a day, always, I'm always like, uh, because she, does she remember? Did I already take the fourth one, or can I have one more? And she's not remembering, right? So we talked about this. She's taking more than I told her to, which would be misuse, even if, she's, if it's a memory issue. She's losing them or discarding them or she's there somewhere. Uh, the, or somebody else is taking them. 
She has somebody who goes and picks them up from the pharmacy. Somewhere between the pharmacy and the house, they could disappear. We don't know. Um, the family, I mean, anybody who comes in there could be taking them. So what would you do? She ran out early. She's in pain. She, she, she needs her medicine. Um, I verify with the pharmacy that she got the full Right. So we're right. So working with the pharmacy is a really good one. Who's picking them up? It, sometimes they'll even notice who's picking them up or what the state of affairs is. Is the patient there when she gets them? All that stuff. And did she get all of them? Right. They have to show ID, so we know who's picking them up. A locked um, medication box or a, or an mm -hmm. electronic box that dispenses just that dose at that time. Yep. We could lock them up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so let's say we've discussed it with her and she's literally like, I actually have no idea. I don't know where it is. And she might say, you know what, it is possible that there are days where I forget that I took the fourth one and I might take an extra. And I think she even told me once, like, she knew she was taking an extra. She was just in so much pain. We are under treating her pain, most likely, um, with only four of these a day. And I think some of it happens in the middle of the night because these are short acting. So I think we've covered a lot of options. I mean, we need to talk to her, we need to talk to the pharmacy, we need to talk to the family, um, you know, the, that whole thing. I mean, are we already calling the authorities? Are we reporting this? No. Okay, good. So long term, she, for me, it's six, we get up to six a day before we would do long acting, yeah. And long acting, I'd like to know that we have a safe setting too before we put long acting in there. As everyone knows, the long acting are probably even more valuable than the short acting. So we wanna make sure she's safe first, but yes, maybe we're headed for something long acting. Okay, so she, so she takes the oxycodone four times a day. This is her story. She goes with the aid once a month to get the medicine. Her daughter takes the medicine, puts it into a pill box, four pills, in one slot, and then she's allowed to take those four over the day. So they're not in four different slots, it's a one slot. And she has a schedule for taking it, but it's barely controlled on this. But we have felt that when she got too much higher than this, she got a little confused. Um, so the family notes, when you call them, that sometimes the pill box is rearranged, that she's moving the pills around. So she stole one from another day and then tried to backfill it and that the, and that the master bottle runs out early. So is she abusing her drugs? Is this drug abuse? Are we worried she's addicted to them? No. Um, is it misuse? Yeah, so she's off the, so what would you do now? And I think somebody already sort of said this. We did this. Yeah, so I don't, probably a lot of people have seen these before. So these are time dispensers. Um, and what you can do is you fill it, you set the clock on there for when you want it to open, and the little door opens, and they have a certain amount of time to take the pill out, and then it closes. And there are, there are if you put automatic pill dispensers into Google, there's, I mean, there's 100 of them. There are a lot of different ones, and they can be locked. And so the daughter could put them in there, lock them, and it will alarm her when she's supposed to take it, but she couldn't have more than four a day then. She can't take them from anywhere else. Um, and, it, you know, and the hard part is, of course, having this conversation with her and with the caregiver. 
Right? So first I have it with the patient, and I say, this is for your safety. These are hard to remember. I think you need to do this. Because of course she's going to wonder, why did you lock my pills in my own house? You know, they're my pills, and wh who, is, who are you to say? So that's a tricky conversation. And what I tell the caregivers is I say, this is in your best interest. If I lock it, I'm protecting you. Because we were, you know, because then there's no question that, that this has nothing to do with you. It's just in your best interest. And most people are actually pretty grateful for that because they know that something squirrely is happening with the meds. And they're like, this has nothing to do with me. I don't want this to come back to my agency or something like that. They're pretty happy with these, usually. Okay? So these are, these are kind of fun to look at, you know, if you have people in this predicament. And I send these emails to families saying, you might think about doing one of these. Okay, so she goes on that, but she's getting sort of worse in senior housing. She still has a lot of pain, and she goes to an assisted setting where the nurses administer her pain, and actually she's a lot better, which makes us realize she probably really wasn't taking them right, uh, right on the, on the, um, on the right uh, regimen. Um, but she has ongoing pain, even in a facility setting. Uh, the long-acting agents don't help. The short-acting works better. A lot of people like the idea of taking, their, taking pills. I have pain, I need a pill, I have pain, I need a pill. The long-acting ones, or even the patches, are sort of are invisible. And then it, 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 they, they lose that connection to the relief of the pill. So she had that kind of dynamic, and a lot of people have that. They're like, I'm not getting any pain medicine, and it's like, well, what's that fentanyl patch on the back? And they, you know, they don't kind of get that, and they want that 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 pill that comes. I think there's a, a nurturing aspect too of the nurse coming and addressing the issue. So um, that's another reason sometimes that we use the short-acting one because it has that interactive part to it. Okay. Before I do the next case, does anybody have any questions or? Things about that one? Yeah? So one thing that comes up a lot is uh, cost, because those automatic pill containers yeah. are expensive. Yeah, they are expensive. The cheapest one I saw, I think, for this kind is like $150. They go all the way up to like $800, depending on how fancy you want to get. Um, so yeah, they could be really expensive. Yeah. I haven't seen insurance coverage for those. Does anybody else know? The state of Vermont and Choices for Care program, we can arrange oh. under the assistive devices and more modification uh, oh. benefit to be able to have the case managers submit a new request for that every year, and and we can fund it that way. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. She was saying through the Choices for Care program as part of their DME benefit, their durable medical equipment benefit, they no, can't. No, actually, it's long-term care. Oh, through their, care. okay. And the it's choice. under the, um, the long-term care benefit under their, their home-based service plan, um, we, can, we can actually fund that. If they're in an assisted living or residential care setting, we cannot. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but in a home-based setting for someone who is being cared for by caregivers, we can, under their service plan, figure out a way with the case manager to fund that. Yeah. And I've never tried to write a letter or anything to justify it before. Usually people have just bought one and sometimes there's some floating around. People will reuse them, that kind of thing. Um, other comments or questions about the first example? Okay. Oh. Um, when she was having the um, uh, overuse problem or misuse problem, did you get a urine drug screen? 
So your drug screens are a good, are a good question. Um, and uh, I don't know, if, Margaret, are you going to talk about drug screening? Drug screening in older people is, is tricky in my mind, especially if they have memory problems, because I have issues with the consent part of it. And I think we'll talk about, we could talk about that, like who's consenting to the drug screen? What if she's actually buying street drugs and we're testing her for, you know, and we find out about something else that, it, it, there are issues there. Um, that's come up a couple of times when the police have been involved with some of our cases about drug screening people um, to see if they're getting the medicine at all. Um, and there are some um, uh, uh, decision-making issues around that, you know, especially with people with memory issues, where I think this comes up a lot. But it's a really good point. Drugs, this comes up a lot in our clinic too. Should we be doing random UDSs on these patients the way we do on everybody else? Um, and right now we're not doing that. But that I think will get discussed in more detail with the next one, which I'm looking forward to hearing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right, right. I haven't had to use, we're going to talk about some more pillbox kind of things. So I haven't had to use the locked one very often. And usually, the, 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 I used it once here and it worked out fine. And the other setting I used it in, there was actually a caregiver in the house. So it was locked for multiple reasons. And then they just reminded the person to take it out. You know, there was a prompter. I think it was a spouse who was a prompter who was to get it out. Um, we usually get away with a, a something a little less formal. Yeah. Okay, these are good questions. Okay, let's look at another case. Um, so this one is, so an 80-year-old woman with pretty advanced dementia, um, requiring pretty um, constant supervision. She lives at home with her husband. And she has, you know, pretty mild chronic pain. She has an above-in-the-knee amputation from diabetes, and she has phantom leg pain, and it's mostly at night. So she just has trouble sleeping because she feels this um, uh, phantom leg pain. She also has COPD. She has renal failure. And she just takes one Percocet at night. And she's, she's been doing that for years um, for this phantom leg pain. So unfortunately, her husband, who is her primary caregiver, uh, develops a severe hematologic disease which limits his ability to care for her directly. So he's in the house, but he can't kind of do the hands-on stuff she needs with dementia. She has an amputation, so she needs help transferring. So they hire some private help through a bunch of different agencies. So they kind of got different shifts happening throughout the day to help at home. And this is a big deal to try to keep her, to keep them together. Um, as, they, as they're getting older. And so they get meals, the person is giving them their medications and driving them to appointments. So pretty much very hands-on, um, lots of help in, th in throughout the day. So the visiting nurse comes and is reconciling the meds and notices that the Percocet bottle is nearly empty, but they had just filled it. And some of the pills look different than the rest of the pills that are in the bottle. So she calls us to say, what do you want me to do with this? So now what are the possibilities? <laughs> They're very similar. So we have to worry about all these people, because now not only are pills missing, but they look like they've been mixed together, or something. Something funny has happened with the pills. What else could be happening? <coughs> Yes, right. So again, working with our pharmacist to understand what exactly did, did they dispense, which of these two were the, are the correct ones that are supposed to be in there. 
What are the other possibilities? Substituting pills. And I think some of the other things people brought up before, I mean, she has moderate dementia, the pills are just there. She could be mixing up the bottles, she could be getting confused and muddling them all together because they're out and about during the day. The husband, even though he's ill, he, um, is, his memory is actually intact, so I don't think he, 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 we didn't think he was getting confused. Could he be taking the medicine? He has cancer, he has um, his own symptoms. Um, you know, could he be using the medication? So those are the possibilities. So she's, again, she's misusing them, the husband's doing it, the caregivers are taking it. So now what do you do? Have a heart to heart. Yeah, the whole family, is this working? Yeah, is this whole package working? All these different people, different medical conditions, pills, but they really want to stay at home. So what, what, what can we do? Yeah, so we're thinking locking it up again. So the Percocet bottle, so in this case, we actually ended up, because it seemed more suspicious, the police actually were involved. So um, Percocet bottle was noted to contain Tylenol, which had replaced the other pills. So it was a mix of two different pills. We took the bottle to the pharmacy. Actually, you could take the bottle to the pharmacy and say, what's in here? And they identified both sets of pills. The mix of Percocet and Tylenol, so sometimes she was getting Percocet at night, sometimes she was just getting Tylenol. Um, and she can't tell the difference. And the husband was not the one doing it. So the, the no one knows who had done the medication. We also called APS, and maybe our APS people could tell us whether that's what we're supposed to do, but that's what we did. And so what we did then was this is the simplest thing. This costs like five, you know, $5, $10, so we got a lockbox. It is a plain old box with a key. And so I've done this a number of times. And actually, I would say in most settings where you're going to have this many people in and out of the house and it's this complicated, don't even wait for the medicine to be to have a problem with medicine. Just lock it from the beginning. And the key goes to the husband. And he wore the key around his neck. And when it was time for her to get her Percocet at bedtime, he sat there, they unlocked it, they took it out, and they gave it to her. And that was it. And it was done. And we never figured out where it went or who took it. And you know we never figured it out, but that solved it. And so he kept the key on his person, and he did that. And so we have, I would say, we probably have half a dozen, a dozen people who are locking up the medicine. And we have the same conversation. You know, this is to protect you, but it protects the caregivers um, from us needing to do this whole police APS thing. We would lock up the pills, and you should keep the key. Um, and that's what he did. And this is obviously a lot cheaper than the $180 timed box which they actually tried and that didn't seem to work, I think. Okay, so they lock it in the lockbox and the husband keeps the key. He unlocks it at night and watches the caregiver take it out. And ultimately he passes away and she moves to a facility setting, which was sort of, and she ended up staying on her percocet. So that was kind of the, 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 the end of that one. Um, so before I do this, are there any questions or comments about the second one? It's sort of a flavor of the first. Uh, Yeah, well that was a good question. And part of it is I think with well, the way we ended up doing it was having him take out the pill in front of the caregiver who then gave it to the patient. So that the three of them were together with the lockbox. And I think one of the things that ends up happening is once you, once you sort of put your foot down and say we're watching, they usually have, it goes away. Yeah, it's, it's sort of done, yeah. 
Um, I think it's when it doesn't look like anyone's paying attention that that's where trouble happens. So I think maybe it's another good reason to say why you lock it up from the beginning because we're counting, we're watching. I think that's one of the good things about contracts, even when the patient is you know, has memory issues, is it just tells people, we're watching. We're watching the pill counts, we're watching with the pharmacist, you know, we will notice if there's a problem. Um, so, you know, so again, looking for safe ways to prescribe, um, you know, low threshold to lock up medicines and create systems of accountability. Um, and I, uh, you know, we don't want to deny older people adequate pain control because of fear of outside abuse. This is part of the opiophobia or, oh my gosh, that house is a mess. There's all this stuff. There's all these people coming in and out and saying, we can't put Oxycontin in there. We have to find ways, because we looked at the consequences of not treating the pain adequately. We have to find ways to get around that. Uh, Close monitoring people with these medications. I think the follow-up thing is really important. If we're going to start low and go slow, it means you have to kind of, it's not something where you give the pills and see somebody in six months. It could be you're going to see them every two weeks or have uh, phone calls every two weeks or have a visiting nurse in there. Really monitoring, are we, are we meeting the two goals? Are we controlling the pain and keeping it safe? Um, and the last thing is, you know, we need to work really closely with law enforcement and adult protective services when they're questionable cases. They really are such a great resource for us when we're concerned that something might not be right. And we call them a lot about those things. And I think going back to the question of what is at stake, I had that diagram at the beginning, like looking at the trajectory for older people. You know, we want to keep our vulnerable older people safe, safe from their own medications. Right, you know, they're safe that they're not going to end up in the emergency room with constipation or confusion because we've given them a whole slug of opiates. Um, we want to. We also want prescribers to be safe. You know, the, every time something gets diverted, it has my name on it, and I take that seriously. And I don't want my bottles with my name on them floating around in the community, um, or or causing patients harm, showing up in the emergency room, and we were the prescribers. We want. We don't want to um, create at-risk situations. Um, but we also want to be careful about holding back therapy that could really help somebody. Sort of being reluctant to give somebody opiates that could help them, that could make them more functional because we're afraid of this other stuff. And we also don't want, we need to work on systems that create all these barriers to adequate pain control. As everybody knows, you know, all these controlled substances, we're about to be under more scrutiny in our states for prescribing. Um, it already creates a lot of barriers to adequate pain control. Um, so we need to just take all those things into account. So generally, sort of, uh, you know, recommendations from the guidelines is just be aware there are guidelines for pain regimens in the elderly. I recommend looking at the AGS guidelines. Um, they talk a lot about risks and benefits. You know, use the non-pharmacologic approaches. Therapy works, lidoderm works. Um, maximize acetaminophen, which is in general a pretty safe drug look at injections, procedures that could help, but you also have to develop some comfort with prescribing opiates in the elderly and have a, a process for it. And I think that um, I usually feel <coughs> safe doing it in most situations. And I would discuss all these risks with people up front, discuss lock boxes, discuss who's coming in and out of the house, discuss the scrutiny that they're gonna be under, and talk ahead about safety um, and making sure that they stick to the regimen. And this is my thank you <laughs> to the GTC for having me, to our senior care team who does all this work with us, and to all the people we work with in the community. Yeah. And I think, do I, I don't even know what time it is. Do I have time for questions? Yeah. Do you have a couple? Do you have a flight
or a comment. Actually, if people have ideas, we could. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you ever use acupuncture? Yes, we actually have an acupuncturist in our office, um, so we do we do do acupuncture. Uh, good experience. With yes, very good experience with it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think that, um, I mean, there's two answers to that. I mean, the, if you want to be a purist and you say those drugs are really good for neuropathic pain, you know, following the guidelines for people who have mostly neuropathy, you know, those, those are good drugs. I think they have as many side effects, if not more, than the opiates. A lot of people get used to the opiates um, in, sen in the sense of any kind of fogginess, um, whereas a lot, you know, the, the, the gabapentins, that whole class of medications, um, a lot of the sedating side effects just are always there. Um, but it has a real role, I think, especially at nighttime, helps people with neuropathy sleep. Um, and so, so one is being, you know, targeting specific types of pain with the right medication. And then there's that rational polypharmacy, which was, you know, maybe using a little bit of Neurontin when it's going to be helpful, maybe at nighttime, using the oxycodone, which is maybe something they can tolerate better during the day for before they get in the shower, because they're going to be doing a lot of moving around. And really, you know, especially if um, you have helpers doing that regimen, that rational polypharmacy where you use low doses of a couple of different things might be better than having really high doses of gabapentin. So the answer is yes, of course, yeah. Um, this is just more a comment than a conundrum that I run into. I work way up north in um, uh, Whitefield, and there's a lot of, of abuse, diversion, and so on. And that may be true down here, too. But because I don't prescribe opiates very often, it's very, very limited sort of, I took over I tend to get people who come in my office knowing from the word on the street that they're not going to get that, and they come in talking to me about, you know, how their older relative is chopping up the, you know, morphine and mixing it with the Adderall and snorting it with the sign of grandson. And, you know, I hear that kind of story, and I have people coming in and asking for treatment because they kind of know I'm not going to be able to, I won't prescribe. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I hear your talk makes me reminds me of a couple things. One is that uh, a lot of times older family members when they will not notice that their children or that there's going to be diversion in the household because there's this whole denial thing that happens. So I may know it in a small community because I've heard it from this person or that person yeah. that you know, this is going on. But the history that you get from about the family is not always reliable from the patient. And if you don't have the benefit of of hearing that, um, you often, I think, do contribute to the problem of what's out there on the street. And so I use a lot more data functions first, and I actually, even in amputation pain where it's not possible to help, I've actually seen it help. I have one woman completely went away at a very low dose. I think we're doing 200 milligrams at bedtime or something like that. So I don't know. I, I, I completely, I feel conflicted Thank you. 
prescribing you to avoid. You know, those drugs go out there and you don't know exactly what happens to them. And um, I think contracts, UPS is trying to figure out ways around it, but for older people, it's really tricky. I mean, we just had, you know, we have incidents at facility settings that are monitored, you know, of, of the drugs disappearing and being sold on the street you know, in the facility. I mean, so it's, it's I, I think it's really real. I'm, I'm with you. And I think if you go back to the idea of use teeny tiny doses, small amounts are prescribed at a time. If you're giving somebody a half an oxycodone at bedtime, they're getting 15 a month. I mean, it really just isn't enough, you know, to fuel a, a whole, you know, you know, industry out of their house of selling the drugs. But I mean, it's, yeah. And I think, yeah, we have to have a low threshold to, um, to be suspicious, sad to say. Yeah. Ben Nordstrom is actually speaking at the National Office yeah. on this exact problem tonight of having his pocket Yeah, yeah. I think it's a real, I mean, I think all prescribers, and I think that also the rules are going to change. I mean, you know, in terms of how we can prescribe, and I think there's going to be more scrutiny. We need more pharmacy interconnection to tell us how many prescriptions are being filled by one person. I mean, there's all of that. And, um, and hopefully that will help us. You know, allow the patients who need the drugs to get the drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, you raised your hand. I, I wanted to hear what this lady said in the red shirt. I didn't hear. Ben Nordstrom is in charge of our addictionology program at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and he is speaking tonight on the exact topic of the secret, secret epidemic yep, of, of prescription drug misuse and diversion. At the college? Yeah. No, it's at the, it's at the um, hospital and auditoriums, E and F. So if you go into the main entrance, they can tell you where to go. And we'll actually have a free uh, webinar on that on the first Tuesday of December. So if anybody wants some Ben Nordstrom. So yeah, a few more things coming up. So.